Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Word Bomb by TVO, the podcast that explodes today's most talked about words and brings you stories the dictionary doesn't tell you. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. This is our very first episode, and we're so glad you're listening. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. So I guess we should start off by talking about why we started the podcast. Yeah, so I originally came up with the idea for Word Bomb right after the American election. And I guess at the time I was going to a lot of political events and I kept hearing people use the word gaslight Mm -hmm. in regard to Trump. And I realized that I think some of these people had only heard the word gaslight in the context of that Teen Vogue article, Trump is Gaslighting America. Yes, I I remember reading that. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people had only had that one exposure to the word. And I was like, I have a totally different association of the word gaslight. Right. Were you thinking of like the movie? Yeah, it's a movie. And actually before that, it was a play. And in this play, it's about a couple where the husband keeps dimming their gaslit lamps and denying it to convince his wife that she's losing her mind. So that's why gaslighting became a metaphor for abusive relationships in which a partner is like convincing the other partner that their feelings are irrational or that they're not in their right mind. So as a theater kid... I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a way to share that story so everybody gets this fuller history and understands the story behind that word? And then I brought Karina on board and we started to collect words that we wanted to explore. Yeah, so I was really pumped when you brought this idea to me because I'm a freelance editor and I've been sort of a lifelong reader and writer, but it wasn't until I started copy editing the student paper in university and taking some copy editing courses that I really started getting excited about sort of the backstage of words and sentences and paragraphs. When I was taking these copy editing courses, I remember I had this prof, and she said that the main thing that should be top of your mind when you're editing is two questions, what works, what doesn't. I like that. uh, Yeah, I really love that because it's not as persnickety as some people think editing is. (laughs) Like, it's not what's right, what's wrong. It's not what's correct and incorrect. It's what works and what doesn't. It really got the wheels turning in my mind and made me just want to dig into all of those things that before had been kind of intuitive when I was, say, writing fiction or reading a novel. Just kind of draw back the curtain and really get into why it works, why it doesn't work, why it's happening. I really like that. And my own background is in theater as a writer, but also as an actor. And so much of acting work is about grappling with like, why did that playwright choose that word at that time? So for example, if you're working on a Shakespeare play, what did that word mean when he wrote it? And what does it mean in the context of an audience today? Mm -hmm. So this show is a really good opportunity for Karina and I to dig into some of the words that are the most heated and the most contentious today, because we're really interested in 
finding words that are right in a moment of social change. Words that are undergoing this seismic shift in the world right now as we're using them. So my job on the show is to talk to people who have lived experiences with the words and uncover the stories and the more personal emotional elements of language. And I'll be here to take the word and investigate where it's been in history and where it's going next. So for our first episode, we chose the word fat. So why fat? I think fat is a really good word to start with because we all know what the word means. Right. And in our culture, we've got a really loaded connotation attached to the word fat and ideas around fatness or bigger bodies. And we should acknowledge off the top that neither of us are fat. No, but we're trying to learn from fat activists how this word is evolving while living in not fat or straight-sized bodies. Yeah, and while the word isn't changing meaning, our nuanced associations with it are in some really interesting ways. To get a sense of the personal challenges with the word fat, we talked to Sophie Carter-Kahn. I don't ever remember not feeling fat and not being afraid of being called fat. A lot of people see I feel fat as like a catch-all phrase that also means ugly. And that's like a confusing and hard thing for like a chubby five-year-old to be <laughs> thinking and feeling. I first learned about Sophie through her podcast, She's All Fat. It's an awesome podcast that takes a look at the day-to-day -day realities of being fat in America. These days, Sophie is really open and confident about living in a fat body. She co-hosts a podcast with the word fat in the title, mm -hmm. but that wasn't always the case. I had like a lot of ups and downs with disordered eating and different kinds of body image things throughout high school. And then when I was in college, I got really depressed and gained a whole bunch of weight. And just because I needed to not focus on it because I was having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, I made a conscious decision to put aside negative thoughts about my body gaining weight or being fatter. After a while, when I was less depressed, I was like, oh, I'm not thinking about this every day anymore. I don't wake up with the words, you're fat, in my head anymore. Fat is not a bad word. It's not a bad thing to be. It's just a descriptor, like the way short or tall is. And it's not something I'm afraid of being anymore or afraid of being seen as because I am not trying to not be it anymore. So what Sophie is talking about, what the fat activist movement right now is doing, and the reason that we're doing this episode, is about reclamation, reclaiming a word. Yeah, you could also call it reappropriation. It's a process that different groups have done for all kinds of words. It's just taking this loaded, derogatory word that was used to disparage the group you're part of and making the choice to use it yourself, kind of make it yours and transfer its power. Mm. So there are already a few that probably pop into your head right away when we're talking about reclaiming words. Oh, totally. Like, I think of the word queer. Right. Queer used to mean strange or peculiar, and it was sort of leveled as this insult towards gay people before it was reclaimed by the community that now identifies as queer. You might call someone queer today with absolutely no negative attachment to the word, but maybe your parents, for example, still find it really awkward and loaded to use, and they would be reluctant to call someone queer because to them it's a negative word. Oh, totally. That reappropriation, that reclaiming, is the same process that fat is going through now. When I first started describing myself as it, I kind of prepped myself to say it. I thought about like, oh, I wonder if I can 
use the word fat to describe myself and I can do it without looking down and I can do it without selling myself out with my face or like laughing a little. Then I started being like, this store doesn't have any clothes for me because I'm fat. Let's go to a different store. Like you just kind of try out all these things (laughs) to say. But it really was a like very furtive start of like peppering the word fat in to see where I could get away with it until finally I was like, yep, this is me. I'm fat. So the difficulty of actually using that word, fat, how Sophie had to sort of work up to it and found it really challenging to start using in this matter-of-fact way, it makes me think of Steven Pinker's euphemism treadmill. What's the euphemism treadmill? So it's a term that he coined in his book, The Blank Slate, which was published in 2002. Uh, Steven Pinker, uh, he's an American psychologist and linguist, and he writes these pop science books about these topics. So the euphemism treadmill is one of the phrases he's best known for. And it's the process where emotionally charged words get replaced again and again by euphemisms. The new euphemism eventually gets tainted by association, and yet another takes its place. It's this unending pattern of words replacing words. Okay, so like what's an example of that? So like the word retarded, which is today a really offensive word. Yeah, like that word makes my stomach like Yeah, I like I have trouble saying it. It actually was a clinical term that in the late 1800s replaced words like moron or idiot. Right. Those words were being used as insults. But after a while, the word retarded itself became an insult. And so that was replaced by a term like mentally handicapped, which itself is now not really in usage or acceptable to say. And that's replaced by something like intellectually disabled. You see where I'm going. Yeah, we mean the same thing, but we're using that phrase and it feels good to use. But in a few years, that might have changed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, nobody's advocating for going back to calling people morons or imbeciles. (laughs) But the fact is that the pejorative meaning of the word kind of catches up to it and inevitably taints it. And if the association of mental illness or disability wasn't inherently negative, then the word for it wouldn't be on the euphemism treadmill in the first place. And fat, I think, is definitely one of those words. Like, I'm sure you can think of a lot of, quote-unquote, socially acceptable ways that you might refer to a fat person. We say, like, plus-sized, big-boned, curvy. Yeah, I found this great Twitter thread where it was like, what euphemisms for fat most frustrate you? And, like, a hundred people chimed in. (laughs) And there were so many. uh, Chunky, plump, chubby, husky, solid... (laughs) Heavy set, well fed, like there's so, so many of them. Rubenesque. Right. And maybe the most common euphemism, overweight, is problematic. Yeah, it, it implies that there's a proper weight that everyone should be, which is totally not true. Yeah, like over what weight? Yeah, yeah. these negative associations almost have more to do with morality. Mm-hmm. And there's so, so many of them. And it's like, why can't we call a spade a spade? And the answer is, of course, that calling a spade a spade would be incredibly rude mm-hmm. because to most people, fat doesn't just mean fat. No, it has these loaded connotations like fat is bad, fat is unhealthy, lazy. It's attached to something hurtful. Yeah. So is reclaiming the word fat and trying to take the stigma completely out of the word, the way off the euphemism treadmill? I think so. The only reason we need a euphemism is because we think of the idea behind the word as bad. 
Exactly, using the word fat, but it's not that simple because people won't let you. Sophie, the podcaster, was telling me about people pressuring her to not call herself fat, to stay on the treadmill, so to speak. And I get people asking me a lot, like, why do you say fat? Why do you call yourself fat? Because they can't imagine it as anything other than just like a mean thing to say. And with the word fat, like sometimes I'll have moments where I'll be like, oh, I still wish I was thin in this moment or whatever. And then I'll be like, oh, no, that feels really bad. I don't want to be feeling that way anymore. And I don't have to be. You can be super like 100% on board with fat positivity as a political movement and still have a lot of moments where you're like, oh boy, it did not feel good to not fit into that skirt. Like, I don't think it, it cancels the other out. Yeah, I can see how it can be difficult to separate those two things, especially when a lot of people grew up with that word being just a go-to insult. Exactly. There was like a boy who kept calling me fat. And then when I told on him, he told the teachers, no, I meant P-H-A-T. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> I only remember Josh flicking my arm and saying, you're fat. P-H-A-T. He was using that as a way to hurt me and, and cut at me in like a allowable way. Like, come on, Josh, don't do this. Do you remember the word fat, like P-H-A-T? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys use it growing up? Yeah, it takes me right back to seventh grade, <laughs> Mississauga, Ontario. Oh, yeah. I actually looked into the etymology and so on, and it's actually about half a century old. What? Earliest sighting in print was in the early 1960s. It's a African-American vernacular English, and it always was sort of a slang word for good, excellent, sexy, but it dropped in and out of usage before really exploding in the 1990s. Yeah, that's when I really associate it with late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Where we had baby fat shoes, yeah. fat farms, fat brand. Farms, yeah. At my school, we used to say it was an acronym for pretty hot and tempting. Yeah. A lot of people think of it as an acronym. Pretty Hot and Tempting is like the tamest example. Oh. Most of the others are like various body parts. Uh, but oh. it's but it's actually a really good example of a portmanteau that I really like, which is a backronym. A backronym? Yeah, like something that people retroactively apply an acronym to. Oh. Because it, it didn't start out as an acronym. It just started out as an alternate spelling of FAT, F-A-T. Which, you know, in some contexts can mean things like abundant or rich. Like when you think of the phrase fat cats or like living off the fat of the land. You can have like a fat wallet. Yeah, fat wallet. I feel like I sort of associate these words with, like you said, African-American vernacular English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of that I feel like comes through hip hop. Mm -hmm. Sophie's talking about the 90s when we had P-H-A-T fat. But we also at that time had Missy Elliott talking about her cute face, chubby waist. And mm -hmm. we had like Queen Latifah, Fat Joe, Notorious B.I.G., who are pushing forward what bodies we see as attractive or powerful. And nowadays, again from African-American vernacular English, we get words like thick. So that refers to a woman who has a small waist and wide hips, wide thighs. Mm -hmm. And then there's BBW, which stands for Big Beautiful Woman. Right. That acronym was actually coined by a woman in 1979 who was starting a magazine for plus-sized women. I associate that acronym with online usage. Yeah, it's really affiliated nowadays more with personal ads on Craigslist or dating sites, that kind of thing. Right. Also, speaking of online dating, have you ever been on OkCupid? I don't think OkCupid specifically. Well, okay, on OkCupid, there's a part where you can specify your body type on your profile page, mm. and there's this drop-down menu, and it gives you all these options. And the options for anything to do with fat currently are overweight, a little extra, <laughs> curvy, full-figured. 
A little extra is really funny. <laughs> yeah. They don't correspond to like less fat, more fat. It's just like literally giving people a menu of euphemisms. Pick the one you're most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really matter which one you pick because we all know what it means. And a lot of people are more comfortable with those euphemisms because removing the stigma around a word as loaded as fat is tough. Mm-hmm. For Sophie, a lot of that movement towards reclaiming came about online. Sophie told us about how she went from being afraid of being called fat to being a vocal fat activist. I had a friend at college who had worked at the mental health center. This was 2013. Instagram wasn't that old. And people were being like, but it's bad. It can hurt your self-image. And she was like, actually, I think it can be a really good tool for people to see bodies that look like theirs. And I was like, huh. And I went on and tried to find other bodies that look like mine because it was hard for me to find another person who was fat and like didn't want to ignore it or fear it. And it was on Instagram or on Tumblr that I started searching like things that I had seen floating around like body positivity or whatever. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you could be all these things and like think that you're pretty and like think that you're good. I started finding more people and then just basically getting radicalized into being a fat activist online. <laughs> it's all it's all online. I really agree with what Sophie said there. We do have the power with social media to curate what images we see on a day-to-day basis. Right. It can be an echo chamber where you just look at people like yourself with the same ideas as you, with the same body as you. Or it can be something where you really open yourself up to other people. Lindy West talks about this. She says, you can really rewire your brain not to feel this thrill of discomfort when you see fat bodies. You can just look at fat bodies. Mm. And I think if you're curating your social media feed to include different sizes, you can actually rewire yourself. You can hack your own brain. Yeah. And that is not to say by any means that the internet is a safe place for fat people. Just look at any comment section. Sophie had a really good example of this that hadn't occurred to me before. I still see a lot of even people who I would associate with other justice movements on Twitter will be like tweeting about how much they hate Donald Trump. And a lot of times liberals or leftists who would never like use a word about a woman or like a person of color as a slur, they'll be like, he's fat and ugly. And I'll have to be like, hey, could you not talk about my body like it's a weapon? What you're doing by saying that, though, is saying like, he's fat and being fat is bad. And I'm like, that doesn't hurt him. That hurts me. Like, he's not going to care. He's golfing. Being fat doesn't make him a bad person. It's being a bad person that makes him a bad person. Social media plays a huge role in this conversation. And it's actually how I first heard about our next guest, Virgie Tovar. I first learned about Virgie from her incredible Instagram presence. She's also a writer and she publishes a lot about intersections around fatness. Her book came out this year called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. Oh, that's a good title. Yeah. And she talked to us a bit about how she first started using the word fat. Before I was a fat activist, I had started using that word with my friends and it was very snarky. I wanted to like use that word to create the discomfort for others that it had created for me. It was this desire to like 
put a little scratch in the scenery. You know, like the moment in the film when when the record scratches and it goes silent. And that word creates that, that tension in the air that's really palpable. And I think that was the first time I used that word myself and in a different way. And these days, Virgie is a lot more than snarky with the word fat, and she's a prolific fat activist. She told us about what reclaiming fatness in a political way meant to her. I think of it as like naming the boogeyman or something like that, right? Like it's not chubby that's like thrown at me by a stranger on a train. It's not the word big boned that like someone is telling me in order to hurt me in an exchange. It's the word fat. So... I can beat the person to the punch and take away the biggest weapon in their artillery. So the types of discrimination that Sophie and Virgie mentioned that we're talking about today are different levels of what is called fat phobia. So fat phobia is a fear or dislike of fat people. And it takes many different forms, from comments from strangers to discrimination and finding employment and even politics. For example, I read this study where fat female politicians were rated as less honest, less inspiring, and less competent. But weight did not affect male politicians in that same way. Oh, of course. I completely believe that that double standard exists. And gender definitely affects how people experience uh, something like fat phobia. Totally. And race plays a factor as well. For sure. But different types of fat bodies experience fat phobia differently, too. So the fat community actually has all these different words that they use, which, by the way, I had never heard of before. So it was really interesting Mm -hmm. um, to look into this. They use these words to recognize that there are different fat experiences. So earlier, when we were mentioning that we are straight-sized, that's a label that refers to people who are not fat who don't experience fat phobia. Yeah, and like we said, we both fit into that category. Exactly. And as straight-sized people, we don't have trouble, for example, finding clothing that fits. Or we see respectful portrayals of our body in the media. Mm -hmm, Like in movies and commercials, say. Mm -hmm. So the next step up from straight size would be what the fat community calls small fat. So that's the lowest end of the fatness spectrum. Some people would categorize small fat as like an American size 14 to 18 or an XL to triple XL. And these categories, it's important to mention, are all really fluid. Totally. They're they're new ideas, for one, and they're flexible to allow a bit of room for people to identify where they fit. Plus, clothing sizes vary so much store to store that it's not really worth relying on. So much. So the next level up from small fat is called mid-fat, or what the author Roxane Gay calls Lane Bryant fat. Lane Bryant fat? Yeah, it's a the plus size clothing store, Lane Bryant, which goes up to a size 28. So if we're using American sizing, mid fat might refer to sizes 20 to 28 or so. And above size 28 is called super fat. And this category encompasses a wide, wide range of bodies. Yeah, super fat bodies are often the most affected by fat phobia, but also the least represented in fat positivity movements like in the media. And these labels are so hard to pin down because different shapes experience fat phobia differently too. So it might come down to how you're shaped or where on your body you happen to carry weight. Like you tend to see plus size models with these slender, conventionally attractive faces or hourglass figures. Like Ashley Graham. Yeah, yeah, sure. Versus a person with a double chin or someone who carries more weight in her stomach, for instance. 
there's such a spectrum of fat experiences, and by that logic, such a spectrum of ways that fat phobia operates. And these words, small fat, mid fat, super fat, point to different levels of privilege within that spectrum. I mentioned it earlier, but a huge part of fat phobia deals with health and diet. We talk about things like the war on obesity, and when somebody loses weight, we all congratulate them.、Mm -hmm. I just want to pause here and clarify that none of this is about health. Many different sized bodies can be healthy or unhealthy, and you can't tell by looking. Or even their BMI, which is body mass index. BMI is a height and weight calculation used in medical spheres to diagnose bodies as obese, but it doesn't take into account the ratio of muscle to fat. So it's kind of like a flawed calculation. A study from the American Journal of Cardiology in 2016 looked at the health of different body types and found that high muscle, high fat bodies that are called fit and fat bodies had a much lower risk of death and better heart health than skinny fat bodies, which are low muscle, low fat bodies. But still, so many doctors rely on these old standards, and that makes finding medical care a huge challenge for fat people. Virgie actually wrote this article I read about a woman who's experiencing these heavy sporadic periods, and she goes to her doctor, and her doctor told her the classic, like, lose weight,、mm -hmm. rather than performing the adequate tests that maybe a straight-sized person might get. And it turned out, unfortunately, that this woman had cancer.、Mm -hmm. But by the time she got the proper medical attention, it was too late, and the cancer had spread. Oh, that's that's awful. It's terrible, right? And sadly, it's not that unusual of a story. In so many of these cases, doctors recommend that their fat patients go on diets to lose weight, but most of these diets don't work to make people healthier and don't even make people thinner in the long run.、Mm, diets can be really unhealthy, and there's a whole industry built around dieting and thinness. I know. I looked into it, and it's estimated that in 2017 alone. People in the United States spent sixty-six billion dollars on weight loss products and programs. Oh my God, that's huge! I know. Virgie told me about how diet culture affected her growing up. I went through years and years and years of weight cycling and starving myself and dieting, and. It's never enough. The weight loss is never enough. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how little food I ate, no matter how much I worked out, and no matter what the results were, short term, they were never sufficient. Dieting and diet culture are so alive and kicking because there's this idea that like you can have everything you want, all you have to do is radically alter your body. It's like diet culture has become so normalized that choosing not to diet is the revolutionary act. And even though I've never dealt with fat phobia in my own life. Diet culture still affects how I see myself, and I've definitely had times where I've done diets or cleanses to lose weight.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I tried keto,、Ooh. you know, like not eating carbs or eating like a very low amount of carbs,、mm -hmm. and I did that for a while. And I would have dreams about eating bread. <laughs> I would just legitimately dream about like eating <laughs> loaves and loaves of bread, and I did. Lose weight because I was eating fewer calories, but it wasn't sustainable. You know, I'm gonna eat bread. Yeah, figuring out ways to like love your body when you're healthy and you're、mm -hmm. not having you know nightmares about how much you're restricting <laughs> your diet. That maybe is the goal here, right? Yeah. Oh, did you hear that archaeologists recently found evidence that 14,000 years ago there were like primitive versions of bread? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So the paleo diet, which is again like keto, all about no bread, has been totally debunked. Oh, yeah. So bread, bread <laughs> prevails. That's great. That's great news. <laughs> and if we investigate our own biases around fatness, it isn't actually about concern for people's health. It's more about the negative connotations that we've grown to associate with the word fat. 
But the good news is our ideas around fatness are socially constructed,、mm-hmm. and you can change how you think about it and what you mean when you use the word fat. Totally. That's all for this week's episode. Huge thanks to Sophie and Virgie for sharing their stories and their insights with us. We definitely recommend that everybody checks out Sophie's podcast, "She's All Fat," and Virgie's new book, "You Have the Right to Remain Fat." Word Bomb, a TVO podcast, is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone, and me, Karina Palmatesta. Thanks to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO. Special editing help this week from Emily Allen. Thanks, Emily. So, like we mentioned, this is our first episode.、Mm-hmm. So please do share the show with friends, and if you like the show, add a rating or review on iTunes. Please do; it makes such a difference. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow us on TVO's Facebook and Twitter. Just use the hashtag #WordBomb. We're also on Instagram at #WordBombPodcast and at TVO.org/WordBomb, where you can find some other resources. Today's show was recorded in the Allen Slate Studios at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario, on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. Thanks for listening.